It's great to be together this morning on what is the Lord's Day, a day we come together to worship our Lord and uh, what a beautiful set of songs uh, to praise the Lord with. And uh, uh, the last two songs we sing at Village Church, I know them quite well. Uh, so yeah, it was just a joy to be able to sing those together with you. Uh, it was great last night. We had a wonderful time of fellowship and thank you for everyone who organized the games um, I was saying to my son, you know, we at Village Church, we haven't had a family camp for uh, nearly eight years. And um, so it was great to be able to come here and be with you guys. And you've truly made us feel welcome. Uh, and we've enjoyed the camp together with you. And uh, last night was great just to have some games and fellowship together. And um, it's nice to be on the winning team, by the way. Um, <laughs> big shout out to team number one. Um, uh, I didn't contribute much, but um, yeah, many of you smart folk happen to be in our group. So... Uh, thank you very much. It was good fun. Well, I hope you've been encouraged by this series and you've enjoyed uh, the, the scriptures and the concepts that we've drawn out of the, the Bible verses. Uh, I pray that they'll be somewhat of a, an appetizer for you, that you would go off into the week and the month to come and really just sit down and open the word, go through the passages and, uh, and be encouraged, uh, be blessed by them. Uh, it's certainly a topic that really needs some mining, uh, some research. Uh, it's wonderful that you have a great pastor here who, uh, who's got all this sorted out and you can go to him anytime and, and ask questions and have him sort of uh, give you a good understanding of what's going on in these texts. So uh, we are blessed by the Lord in many ways because of his word and his gifted uh, preachers and teachers. This morning we're looking at the millennial kingdom and I'm told that as a church you've been through this already to a degree, and uh, so I trust that uh, you are going to understand all of this, and perhaps I might fill in some areas that haven't been touched upon, but I know that it will be a great encouragement to you this morning. I want to ask before we start that you might uh, just, just bow with me in prayer. Uh, we want to seek the Lord's face for His grace upon us this morning. So let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning humbly into your presence, acknowledging that that is only possible because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of your Son, and because he has saved us by his own um, loving work on the cross. Father, we want to thank you that we are no longer aliens and strangers nor orphans, but we are uh, your children adopted into your family, redeemed, sanctified, washed, cleansed. And Father, we want to rejoice in all of these things. We thank you that it is because of these things that we can come into your presence. And Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity to meet as your people this morning, to offer up praise and worship to you. We do acknowledge your goodness, your kindness, your love, your absolute sovereignty. We thank you that it is you, the one who is completely in control of all things, the one who is omniscient, omnipotent. Father, we thank you that you are our God and that you know us all together. Father, as we spend time this morning in your word, I pray and ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would move amongst us once again to bring much encouragement. Father, I pray that you would stir our affections and our desires for the things surrounding your person and your work, your plans for the future. Father, may you open our eyes further that we may understand them to an even greater degree. Lord God, I pray as you move amongst us that you might bring conviction according to your word. Father, we know that we have this great tendency to 
want to shy away from the work that you have for us. The flesh is strong and powerful. And Father, we ask that you would bring conviction where it is needed and required and that you might cause us to be all the more willing to lay our lives down for yourself and for the gospel, that we would become a people that is all the more surrendered over to your kingdom purposes. Father, we want to pray that you would uh, bring this about this morning and going forward into the rest of the year. May you transform us. May you change us. May you help us to see your sanctifying work by your spirit and your word, uh, making us just like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father God, I pray that you might grant to me the ability to speak clearly, to have clear thoughts. And uh, Father, I pray that you might guide me, that I might be used of you to build up your, your children, your sheep for your glory. We give you thanks for this time and we ask for your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, the, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, um, it's a wonderful concept. It's a wonderful thought. Uh, it's obviously a future reality for all of us. Uh, it's interesting that the early church, uh, many of John the Apostle's early disciples, believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, and it was something that they believed was actually going to happen. And I'm thankful that many today still have the same perspective and interpretation of Scripture. Uh, the Millennial Kingdom, well, really, it, it, it picks up immediately after the day of the Lord. We know and we've spoken about the Lord Jesus Christ returning at the rapture and taking his children to be with him. But the day of the Lord is that period where Christ comes down, the trumpet is blown, and he inflicts judgment upon the inhabitants of this world. Uh, it comes right at the end of the day of the Lord. Uh, now, this day of the Lord, and usually when I'm doing this series, I would have already done a series on the day of the Lord, and uh, we only had five sessions, so I had to drop something, and that's one of the messages I dropped. But the, the day of the Lord, that judgment of God, we have to maybe just touch on it for a moment. It's not a 24-hour period. It's not a, a normal day as we would know a day. Uh, we know and we understand that the day of the Lord begins at the end of the tribulation period. The tribulation period is a three-and-a-half-year, 24-month or 1,260-day uh, period. Uh, that is the tribulation period. And Antichrist's reign will end when Jesus returns at the day of the Lord. Uh, and once all of that has been completed, Christ's thousand-year reign will begin here on earth. And something very interesting happens, and you'll see in a moment what I mean by the fact that the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period. When Christ returns, he returns to reclaim and restore creation. Everything in this world, everything in, that has been created, Christ comes to reclaim and restore. We know that he will come and he will sit on his uh, throne in Jerusalem. Uh, Daniel 12, 11 tells us something very interesting. Um, it says this, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, if any of you are good at math, you'll realize that 1,290 days is very different from 1,260 days. There have been an additional uh, number of days, 30 days added here. So what's he talking about? What's this about? Well, the 1,260 days that I mentioned already is the three and a half years. 
But there is an additional 30 days tacked on that Daniel speaks about here in verse 11. And you could jump a step forward into verse 12 and you will say that, see that we go from 1,290 days to 1,335 days. And Daniel says, Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. So what's this all about? We start with 1,260 and then we add 30 and jump to 1,290 and then we add 45 more and we end up at 1,335. What's this all about? And I hope you can follow with me in your minds here if you haven't got the word open in front of you. But this 30 days, it's very significant. And most people would look at this and they would say that upon Christ returning to earth, the 30 days going forward to come to the 1290 days is a period where we would call the, it's the reclamation. It's where Christ comes and reclaims the kingdom for himself by way of war, conquest and judgment, right? So Christ, and we'll see this a bit further in a moment, but Christ comes to this earth and for 30 days he fights back for his kingdom. This all doesn't happen in one day. And uh, we would have in this period likely the sheep and the goats judgment mentioned in Matthew 25. So that's the 30 days. It's reclamation. It's war. It's conquest. It's Christ vanquishing his enemies and establishing his kingdom. And what about restoration? Well, I believe that the restoration is spoken of in the 45 days, which would take us to the 1335-day total. So 45 days of restoration Restoring the nation of Israel and restoring the earth as a whole. Uh, we know that on the earth, the curse is lifted and life changes dramatically. But most people would say that this 45 days is regarding restoration. The end of the 45 days, the kingdom is perfectly complete. It is restored totally in every way that Christ has desired it to be. So this 75-day total uh, is a total of... Uh, days which make up reclamation and restoration for the earth. Um, the kingdom is reclaimed. We know that the day of the Lord, Revelation 19, talks about the battle of Armageddon. Uh, you can also consider Zechariah chapters 12 through to 14, where that battle is also described even in an Old Testament context. But let's just pause for a moment. Let's look at this idea of reclamation. Christ comes to earth at the end of that battle, and, and right at the start of that battle, I should say, and he begins to reclaim the earth. What happens? Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 4. Listen to this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key, the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So here we have, right at the get-go, in this beginning of Christ reclaiming his kingdom, Satan is seized, he's chained, and he's thrown into the bottomless pit, and he's, it's sealed over for the duration of the thousand years that Christ rules and reigns on earth. So there's no deception, there's no enemies, there's no foe to be vanquished. Satan is locked away and sealed, unable to deceive. Uh, he is obviously Christ's most insidious enemy. 
uh, and Christ renders him powerless, no longer able to go out and deceive the nations for the entire thousand years that Christ rules on earth. So that's one point to make. We also know that when Christ comes, he will build the temple, uh, the millennial temple. Uh, Zechariah 6.12 tells us this. And I believe even today many Jews understand and anticipate the fact that the Messiah, when he comes, he will build the temple. Um, it says here in verse 12 of Zechariah 6, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honour and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And by the way, as an aside, that's why there's so much talk in uh, study of eschatology about the coming false messiah and the temple, the third temple, uh, where the abomination of desolation will be set up. Uh, the Jews expect the Messiah to come and build the temple and it will be likely that this false Messiah will first come, the Antichrist will come and he will establish that temple and people will think therefore that he is indeed the Messiah. So again, under this reclamation period, we also see the, the sheep and the goats judgment. You can see it in verse 4, the nations are judged. It says here, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And you can read through Matthew 25 where Christ, it says there, sits on his glorious throne and judges the nations, the sheep and the goats. Uh, verse 31 of Matthew 25, in fact, says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats he will place on the left. And we anticipate the coming of this. We look forward to it. And that is a reality that is going to occur right at the start of Christ's return to earth. This is all part of him reclaiming the earth and establishing his throne here on earth in Israel. We also would say that, and this is a very interesting point that not many people think through, that many of the people from the nations will actually in fact repent and will turn to Christ and give their allegiance to Christ at the start of this millennial kingdom reign. And um, they may have missed the resurrection and they will likely be those who enter into the millennial kingdom with mortal bodies. And I'll show you that in a moment, but just hold your fire for a moment because that's very confusing for some people. Some people don't see that, but the scripture actually tells us that in Zechariah 14, 16, and I'll show you that in a moment. So there's the sheep and the goats judgment. Uh, we also know that there's a period of restoration. So we've seen the reclamation, we've seen Christ come, and we've seen him vanquish his enemies, the battle of Armageddon, uh, Satan has been seized, he's been bound, Christ has established his throne, he's executed judgment, he's sitting there on his throne, he's brought all the nations before him and he's judged them. So the, the throne is secure, his enemies are vanquished, there's a military presence which has no equal now. But what about the restoration? Well, we know and we understand, we saw this the other day, that the earth groans 
It longs for the day when the sons of God will be glorified in their resurrected bodies. And we saw this in Romans 8, 19. The scripture says that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so that's that time where we anticipate the curse being lifted and, and, and creation coming to life. And we'll look at that a little bit later. We also know that the martyred saints will be resurrected as well. In Revelation 20 verse 4, it says here, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So those who had died in the tribulation period, who had refused to take the mark of the beast, they will come to life and they will reign with Christ for 1,000 years here on earth. Part of this idea of uh, the earth being restored is also to see and to realise that Israel as a nation will be restored. Uh, when I did the Day of the Lord message, I went into that into great detail. Uh, I'll touch on that a little bit in a moment, but we know and we understand that Israel will be restored. Uh, the scripture, particularly in Zechariah 12, 10 and 13, 8, tells us that one third of Israel will be restored, right? One third of Israel will be saved. Two thirds will go off into judgment. Uh, again, this all occurs right at the start of Christ's return. We know from Zechariah 12, 10, and, and this is an amazing verse. It talks about uh, the fact that Israel will in a coming day have their eyes open spiritually. And the verse says something to the effect of they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as an only son. And that is because the Lord has poured out upon them a spirit of grace and supplication. And they get to that point where they realize we have crucified the Messiah and one third of the nation of Israel will repent and will turn to Christ. And they see with clarity, this is a divine work of God in bringing salvation to his people. And what you notice in the millennial kingdom it is that it is a very much a Jewish theocracy. Uh, it is all sent around, centered around the people of Israel where Jesus Christ, the, the, the descendant of David, rules on the throne of David as per the scriptures. Romans 11 uh, verses 25 to 27 say this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now get this, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what does that mean? Well, the scriptures teach and ultimately say that God has set a time frame, a time frame. He doesn't just randomly say, well, I think today I'll just restore and redeem Israel. 
the restoration of Israel, you can see there in verse 25, hinges upon the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. And God has determined that a certain number of Gentiles will come to faith. And until that last person places their faith in Christ, Israel will be restored at that point. So God has set that period in time. We don't know when that is. But there is a period of time where the Gentiles come to faith and after which God says that is it. The sun returns and God brings salvation to Israel. And it says here in this verse, uh, there is a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. Well, what is that about? Well, we know and we understand, according to Daniel 9, that there is that 70-week period determined for Israel. Um, and we're told that it's, <clears throat> it's essentially a period of 490 years, uh, 70 weeks of seven. Uh, and, and there's a purpose to it. Israel has rejected their God. They were taken off into captivity. And the full restoration of Israel doesn't um, come to pass until that 70-week period has ended. Daniel 9.24 says this. This is the purpose of the, uh, I guess, the partial hardening of Israel. It is to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And so God, I guess I could say as an act of judgment, has deemed to, uh, I guess, set Israel aside for a time. They are under his discipline. The scripture tells us that when they hear the preaching of Moses and the law, there's a veil that is over their eyes. God has done that by, uh, as an act of judgment upon them because they have rejected him and they rejected his son and the coming Messiah. But it's only for a time. It's only for a time. And in the future, God says, that time has ended. Now I will lift the veil. Now I will come and I will redeem my people. And it's one third of the people of Israel who will be redeemed and restored. So that is a spiritual restoration of Israel, you could say. And again, the millennial kingdom is very much a, a, a Jewish kind of kingdom. And you'll see in a moment where there are feasts and celebrations, which we know and understand already. But maybe let's stop for a moment. Let's consider what life is going to be like in that millennial kingdom, because you will be there. The political life during the millennial kingdom, I want to sort of focus on that for a moment. We're told in Scripture that everybody who is present within the millennial kingdom must present themselves before the Lord each year, right? That's a requirement. If you are living in the millennial kingdom, you must present yourself to the king every year. L listen to Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16 to 17. And again, I mentioned before that there were those who uh, were of the nations who would come and inhabit uh, the millennial kingdom. They would appear before Christ and they would place their allegiance to Christ and in Christ and they would be allowed to live. And, and I get this from these verses. And this is after the battle. It says here, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So sometimes we consider the battle of Armageddon, and, and I don't think we look at it correctly. And we think that every single person on this entire earth will 
get a plane to Israel or make their way to Israel, surround the city and come and fight against Christ and Christ just goes bang and they're all dead. It's only military people who go to war, right? The mums and the older men, the younger boys and the younger girls, they stay home. And so the Battle of Armageddon is a military campaign and that passage there tells us that those who are left in and amongst the nations of the world, they will in some way uh, come to Christ and have possibly bent the knee to Christ and have trusted in him and have believed in him, and they, by the grace of God, are allowed to live. But the scripture there tells us that they are required to appear before Christ on three occasions. Here we can see the Feast of Booths mentioned. Uh, We also know that they have to come annually for a New Year's feast and festival. They must also come and participate in the Passover. And it says there in verse 17, if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. That's the plague that God brings upon those people who refuse to rebel. Another point to consider is this, that The millennial reign of Christ is a thousand-year period where Christ continues to rule the nations with a rod of iron, right? So throughout the whole millennial period, Christ will be ruling and reigning, uh, causing the nations to live in subjection to him. Uh, That's something we don't often consider. John MacArthur says it this way, In the millennium, it will celebrate Messiah's presence again, dwelling among his people and the joyful restoration of Israel, including the ingathering of the nations, God bringing the nations in to worship the king. Uh, We also know from Isaiah 9 verse 6 that uh, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, will set up his government and of his rule and reign there will be no end. A wonderful set of verses that we look at continually even now. Uh, I guess an important point to make if we're considering the political climate of this millennial kingdom is that there will still be strong national identities present during that period. Uh, It won't just be one Jewish population over the whole earth. National identities will still be represented globally and that is a wonderful distinction that the scriptures make for us. Kings and nations, kings and nations, rulers, provinces, Uh, cities, countries, all appear before the Lord who rules over them all with a rod of iron. Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 5, listen to this. And you'll see there's a number of other references there in your notes to a very different set of verses which say the same thing. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations, get this, nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. And so you see this picture here of Christ ruling and reigning on his throne in Israel and all of the nations coming to pay homage 
to give of their wealth and their possessions to Christ the King who rules with justice and equity. There will be no war. There will be no fighting. There will be no battles going on. Christ will, uh, will rule and there will be universal peace throughout the whole world. Still independent kings and kingdoms, yet all submissive to Christ, the King of kings. So this is a wonderful thing to consider, isn't it? Uh, Micah chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. Again here, just to push the point a little bit further. It says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, and that's a reference to the Messiah, Christ, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes from strong nations far away. Here we have that picture of Christ ruling over the whole world with justice, with equity, uh, where there's no more poverty, no more injustice, no more corruption, no more oppression, no more affliction in any way at all. It's all done away with because he rules on this earth with absolute strength and purity. So that's kind of a, a snapshot regarding the political life or the social life of those in the millennial kingdom. Uh, what about the religious life? And this is very interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, it is closely related and tied in with the political aspect. Um, Zechariah 14, 16, we've already seen that the nations come and they worship the Lord on selected uh, um, uh, festivals throughout the year on three occasions. Uh, but maybe we could start by looking at Israel's role in the millennial kingdom. What role do Israel play or what role will they play during this thousand-year period? And, and we might start and ask the question, why did God in fact call the nation of Israel? Out of all the nations of the world, why did he choose them? They were meant to be a what to the nations? A light to the nations, right? That was God's intent for them. But he often found them being rebellious. He often found them being stubborn and hard-hearted. Uh, and they didn't really function by and large as a light to the nations. But during the millennial reign when his people's hearts are fully for him, when they are completely redeemed, they will function in the capacity uh, to which they were originally designed and called for. Isaiah 49.6, and this reference here, and you'll re realise the words when I speak them, uh, they were somewhat referred to and fulfilled in Acts chapter 13.47 where the apostles turn to the Gentiles and uh, as Jewish apostles they go to the Gentiles and uh, function as light to them, but I believe there is a fuller fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. Listen to Isaiah 49 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, we've got to understand that in the millennial kingdom, there will be people with resurrected bodies, and that'll be you and I, but there will be a whole lot of people who were coming to the Lord after the resurrection, and they do not have resurrected bodies. But in a restored earth, uh, which is kind of like a pre-fall environment, people will be um, marrying, uh, they will be having children, and the earth will be populated through them. And that therefore means that the generations that come and uh, uh, grow up and are born have to get to a point where they themselves 
believe in the Lord and trust in the Lord for salvation. We know that at the end of the millennial kingdom, who is it that's released from the bottomless pit? It's Satan. And it says that he goes out to deceive the nations. Why? Because there are still now many people who haven't yielded to the Messiah on the throne. And he deceives them. And he gathers them together once again for that final battle at the end of the thousand years. I hope I'm not overloading you or confusing you with things here. But Israel during the millennial kingdom will be going out and reaching those people and those nations who are having children, who are becoming teenagers, who are becoming adults, who are having their own children. They serve and function as priests to the nations, witnesses to the nation, evangelists to the nations. And that's a wonderful thing to consider, isn't it? Because that's what God originally intended for them. They will do what Christ has called them to do. Zechariah 8 verse 20. Uh, This is wonderful. I love this. Um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favour of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. You can almost hear the excitement in their voice that we are going to learn about God. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favour of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, Ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What a wonderful time that will be. Israel doing what she was meant to have done originally. Loving God, knowing God, being a completely wholehearted, uh, devoted people to God, functioning as a light to the nations and the joy of the nations the joy of the nations clinging onto the robe of the Jew. It's a very vivid picture, isn't it? And saying, teach us about God. Take us to your God. We want to hear from him. Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 3. Again, the Jewish people playing a large role in this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the people of Israel will in every way function as a religious priesthood to God. Um, ambassadors of the gospel, ambassadors of Christ the King, doing what they were meant to be doing. And you ask the question, well, we're not Jewish, and what about us? What will we be doing during this uh, original period, this period here in the millennial kingdom? Well, we know and we understand that Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, uh, they were commissioned and charged by God to represent him here on earth. They were to govern and rule over the whole earth. Uh, And I believe that in the millennial kingdom, just as we were gospel ambassadors here on this earth, we will function as ambassadors in the millennial kingdom. We will represent him to the nations. And and there's a very important role that we have in this, that we will rule and reign with him. Uh, He rules over the nations. 
He governs, he presides over them in a very judicial way. I believe, and I'll show you this in a moment, that we who are the church, the redeemed of the church age, will function in this capacity. Listen to Revelation 2 verses 26 to 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And again, to be given authority implies that you're also given responsibility. You're given authority for a reason. It's to act upon it. It's to, um, it's to function in a responsible way. Uh, and that idea of governing, well, it means to rule, it means to preside over. And I think we could say that if the Lord Jesus Christ is to govern and preside over the whole world, then we who are his uh, representatives, we who rule and reign with him, will likely be given uh, cities, councils, towns and so forth to uh, rule over and preside over. 2 Timothy 2.11b says this, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Daniel 7.18, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Verse 27, same chapter, And the kingdom and the domain and the greatness of his kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. You know, I think we read of this concept of ruling and reigning with Christ in the New Testament and we have no idea what that means. And I don't think it's wrong for us to examine how Christ will be ruling and reigning and to then take the next step and say, well, his rule and reign, we will be ambassadors for him in that same capacity. Um, we will rule and reign with his authority, uh, doing what he has called us to do. We do his work on earth in this millennial kingdom. It's certainly not easy to understand, is it? But I think we can, we can really get our head around it when we consider Christ's rule and reign and what that will look like. Um, Revelation 5.9, a very interesting passage. Um, again, talking about the fact that we will rule and reign with him. Um, There's talk here of the scroll uh, and the the opening of the scroll and its seals and and that scroll is in fact the the title deed to the earth and no one in heaven was found worthy except for Christ. He was the only one worthy to redeem and reclaim the earth and it says here of him, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Not just live on the earth, not just enjoy life on the earth, but reign on the earth. So we have a God-given purpose and task of ruling and reigning with Christ. Revelation 20 verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's what we looked at the other day, yesterday. Over such the second death has no power, but they, that is those who partake in the first resurrection, 
they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And one final passage just to draw, really drive home the point. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 3. And again, the whole idea here is uh, lawsuits amongst Christians and why it is wrong and so forth. And he says this in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? It's an absurd question that he asks. It's almost like, what are you doing? Do you not have the capacity to judge matters in and amongst yourselves? And he gives us the reason why he's so outraged. Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You see that? Deciding cases for people throughout the world, deciding disputes, nation against nation. That will be our function. That will be our calling, our purpose. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And I'm sure they all just went silent when that was read out. Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? Now, that's a question for your pastor afterwards. Don't come to me. <laughs> it's hard to understand. How much more then matters pertaining to this life? And we, what a, what a weighty task. I don't think we consider and understand that that will be our future, given the responsibility to judge the nations on behalf of Christ. Considering matter, considering cases of great and weightiness, we will judge those on Christ's behalf as we rule and reign with him. So that's the political and the religious element in a snapshot. And I hope it's given you food for thought. Um, the question then is, what will it be like living on earth during the millennial kingdom? So everyday life, what will it be like? What will I be doing other than ruling and reigning with Christ and functioning as an ambassador of truth and, and so forth. Well, we know and we understand that throughout the thousand years, the creation will be restored uh, back to what it was before the fall. Uh, paradise lost is going to be paradise found. Uh, we know that before the fall, uh, people lived for an incredibly long period of time. Um, this should have been part of the quiz, by the way. How long did Adam live for? 930 years, Noah 950, Methuselah 969, Jared 962. Some people look at that and go, oh, well, well, that's just, I don't know what that is. It's, um, it's made up. It's ridiculous. No one ever lived for that long. But it was a pre-fall environment, um, a wonderful period of time. Not a pre-fall environment, I'm sorry, a post-fall environment, but very close to the fall. Uh, people lived a very, very long period of time. But we know that the earth will be restored to a pre-flood environment. That's what I was looking for. I'm sorry. Uh, a pre-flood environment. That was the big issue here. Uh, Isaiah 65.20 says this, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And again, I mentioned it the other way. I don't know if you remember that. But in the millennial kingdom, people will live a long life. You and I will live forever because we'll have resurrected bodies. But people who are born into that kingdom, who have mortal bodies, will live for a thousand years. 
without trouble, without a problem. Why? Because everything will have changed. The curse would have been lifted. The earth has been restored. It's a pre-flood environment. And it says here that the young man shall die 100 years old, not the old man. If someone dies at 100, they're considered a young man. It's a young death. People will scratch their heads and say, what happened? Why did he die at such a young age? Can you imagine that? Very interesting. Uh, We will live normal everyday lives with everyday duties that we presently have. Um, Verse 21 of the same chapter, Isaiah 65, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. And that was the case here on earth. Uh, A Jew would build and he would be cast out and someone would take his home. This is a promise to Israel. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be, shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labour in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. So that is a, a, a wonderful set of verses regarding life in the millennial kingdom. There'll be trade, there'll be commerce, there'll be people, as it says, building houses, planting vineyards, sitting under their fig trees, fellowshipping, enjoying the fruit of their labours, no threat or danger of their possessions being taken, no wars, no invading neighbours or anything like that, peace and harmony, uh, the way that life is meant to have been. That will be life in the millennial kingdom in one way. We also know that there will be marrying, there will be procreation uh, amongst those who have earthly bodies. Uh, Isaiah 65 verse 24, the next set of verses, The Lord says, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And these verses from yesterday, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So again, all of the post-fall realities that you and I see around us all the time, You watch one of those nature documentaries uh, and you see people running from their lives from wild animals. That will never, ever happen. Isaiah 11 verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Many people read this and they think, well, that's, Clearly that's figurative because that could never happen. But again, we're talking about Christ ruling and reigning and the curse being lifted and Christ having absolute rule over his whole creation. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What a joyful time. Tells us why. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 45, and you can look at these verses later, verses 5 to 12. I want to just draw your eyes down to verse 9, Ezekiel 47. It speaks about the river coming out from beneath the threshold of the temple and turning all the salt water fresh. Verse 9, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish, for this water goes there 
that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live wherever the river goes. Fishermen, you get that? Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Englaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. It fish, its fish will be of very many kinds like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not be fresh. They are left, to be, they are left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And I hope that's for some of you that's the first time you've considered that because I know it will make you feel joyful and wonderful on the inside. What a, what a joyful picture of what life will be like in the millennial kingdom. Everything coming to life, everything coming to life, teeming with life. Perhaps the middle of Australia won't be a desert. Perhaps it will all be covered in fertile plains with trees and forests and rivers and lakes and, and all sorts of animals and fish and different things. Zechariah 14.8, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Another verse saying the same thing. Joel 3.18, again very poetic here. And in that day the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Again, a wonderful picture of what life will be like because the, the Lord rules in Israel. So if we can just summarise this and just kind of go back over this for a moment. Uh, we can see the political, the sociological, the environmental changes have all occurred. Jesus is ruling and reigning as the sole absolute king and ruler over the whole earth. Uh, believers will be ruling with him, being given authority to exercise his rule. There'll be justice, there'll be equity, there'll be righteousness, holiness. There'll be absolute submission to his will, which is a wonderful thing. And all of this will occur for 1,000 years on a restored earth. Eden will be restored. Waters will uh, fill the earth and bring everything to life as we just saw. Plants and animals will flourish. The world will teem with life. Fellowship and peace will be a reality for believers and for all people. There'll be the building of homes, the growing of produce, livestock. There'll be trade. There'll be commerce. There'll be celebrations. There'll be annual religious festivals to the Lord. There'll be worship and there will be praise. And all of this for a thousand years. Now you think about it. Think about how long you've lived and then consider 1,000 years. And it's a wonderful thing to consider, isn't it? I've lived for 46 years. I'm not even halfway to 100. 1,000 years, uh, 20 times as long. What a wonderful thing to consider. How do we live in light of these truths? How should the fact that we now know this and we study this, we understand this, how should this change us in the present? Do we respond by going, oh, that's interesting? Oh, I don't think so. I think when you have clarity around these truths and when you understand what is to come, it will change you in the present. Because if all of these things are to be yours because of Christ, if you are to live in that kingdom for a thousand years in a resurrected body, um, 
enjoying all of the wonderful blessings that that kingdom will give to you, does it now matter if you go without, right? Does it now matter if you lack? Does it now matter if you suffer? It doesn't matter at all. Does it matter if you say, Lord, my whole life, my desires, my wills, my wants, the pursuit of my pleasures, I'm just going to put them aside and I'm going to live for you entirely. I'm going to live my life as an entire sacrifice to you, putting aside my wants. That's an honourable, wonderful thing. But the temptation is, well, I'll go without this and I'll go without that. But when you view your life in the context of the millennial kingdom, does it matter? It doesn't matter at all, does it? It doesn't matter at all. You know, I often get to that place and I believe the Apostle Peter was sort of in that place where, and I don't think it's a wrong thing to consider this, but he asked the Lord this question. Uh, he probably looked around and realised that he'd great, given up a, a great many things. And, and he asked the Lord this question in Matthew 19, verse 27. And this is the context of the rich young ruler who rejected salvation in, in exchange for his riches. He chose to live well in the present in exchange for living in, poorly in the future. Peter says this, what, uh, sorry, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And I don't think that's a selfish, evil question. I think he was being genuine and God-honouring in asking that question because there's no rebuke from Jesus at all. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that phrase there, that promise, that's not for you or for me because you are not one of the 12 and you are therefore not going to sit on one of the 12 thrones. That is selected for the 12 disciples, right? Um, but then he goes into verse 29 to talk about every other believer. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And I'm sure Peter would have gone, ah, oh. <laughs> and, you know, uh, what a wonderful blessing to give your life to the Lord. The Lord is no man's debtor. Uh, he rewards faithfulness. And in fact, I believe there's a biblical principle that to not reward faithfulness, to not reward service is actually wrong. The Lord teaches us that over and over again. So the Lord is no man's debtor. And here in the millennial kingdom, I believe it's that time and period where we live with those rewards that Christ gives us upon his return. Fruitful blessings because of fruitful service. We have many scriptures which speak about this. Um, Matthew 24, 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. A very, very interesting passage there. Those chapters there, Matthew 24 to 25, the whole context there is the coming kingdom, the return of Christ. You have the parable of the fig trees, the virgins, the talons. The whole idea is being ready that the Lord is coming. And the whole point I'm trying to make is that the life of faithfulness that you live here on earth will be reflected in the life that you live in the millennial kingdom. The Lord talks about the fact that he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. 
he who has been given and entrusted with uh, this amount of responsibilities, that will be reflected in the millennial kingdom, I believe. I think that's the point the Lord is trying to, to, to make to us in those passages. So we come full circle and we can see that the life that we live here on earth um, is in service to our Lord. Uh, we know that the Lord is going to examine us one day and he is going to reward us in proportion to the service and works that we have done for him, not to earn salvation, but out of love for him and the faithfulness that we have shown here. Uh, he will give us, a, I guess, a, a relative amount of faithful responsibility in the millennial kingdom. I believe that's how it's going to work. You've been faithful in much on earth. I will give you much to be responsible for in the millennial kingdom. I believe it will be proportionate. But all of this to say this should affect how we live in the here and now, right? This should affect everything. And I said it at the start and I'll say it again. If we lose sight of what is to come, if we lose sight of the, the purpose that God has for us in that future, it, it affects how we live now. If you do not understand that all of that is to come, if you have a, a small view and understanding of your future, of heaven, of the rewards, of the millennial kingdom and so forth, then you will naturally live for the here and now. I'm convinced that's the case. And you know what? I spend time with a lot of believers who really don't understand a lot of this and there is a correlation. I see a lot of living for the here and now. So I pray that as we've considered this, as we've thought through what is to come, that we might get ourselves to the point where we say, you know what, I'm going to reassess my life. I'm going to examine whether I'm living a sacrificial life to Christ or not. I want to just share one final verse with you, 2 Corinthians 5. Um, now, I hope I can read the Bible because I don't have my glasses on. Um, all the verses are in my notes, but um, I want to try and read this for you. 2 Corinthians 5, where are we? Paul talks here. Um, um, yeah, here in verse 13. Uh, he talks about him being beside himself. And he says here, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So he's obviously commenting on the testimony and the example of these men's lives. Perhaps from an outsider's point of view, they look like they're out of their minds. They were just sold out and devoted to Christ and they were radical. They were dramatic in how they lived. They were very different from everyone else. Paul gives us an insight into why they were that way. He says here in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Now, this is what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we are just so filled with joy and happiness and we woke up one day and we're just so loving and we just want to do all these things. It means this. When we consider Christ and the gospel and his love on the cross for us, in dying for us, his love dramatically controls us. It's not the warm feeling that's come over us, but it's the demonstration of his love which dramatically changes how we live now. He says, for the love of Christ control controls us, and here's his thinking, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, why? that those who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's Paul's conviction. That was why Paul was selfless. That was why he was sold out. That was why there was no Saul left. It was only Paul, a selfless, godly man who laid his life down for Christ and the gospel in the greatest way. He looked at Christ and he said, he gave his life that I might live. How dare I begin living for myself? That was his conviction. And and his logical point is, of course, I'm going to live for him and lay my life down. Just a, a wonderful set of verses. So I pray that you, as I do, will go away from this and examine our lives. I'm going to examine my life further. Is there anything that I'm holding back from Christ? Is there an area in my life that is a no-go zone for God? Or does he have my whole being? Am I laying my life down for him in its entirety? Now, that doesn't mean that you all, all of a sudden, become a missionary or a pastor or a preacher. But everyday life, living for the will of God as a mother, as a father, as an employee, as a child, as a brother, a sister, and so on, living for the will of the Lord in everyday life, that's what the Lord calls for. So I pray that these truths regarding the millennial kingdom have encouraged you. I hope they've challenged you. uh, And I, I pray that the Lord blesses you this morning. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we want to thank you for all that we've considered. Father, I know that we've read a great many verses and perhaps many of these verses are new to some. Lord, I pray that none will be overwhelmed. I pray that uh, what we've just heard would be appropriated into our minds, that we would be able to filter through it and be changed by it. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that we can turn to it at any time and be encouraged. I pray, Lord God, for all of us here this morning. Father, I confess that we have a, and you know this all too well, we have a, 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 a tendency to climb down off the cross. We have a tendency to want to uh, govern our own lives, to call the shots and to not submit to your lordship. Father, I pray that we might be people who are completely sold out to you, that whenever we make decisions, whenever we turn to the left or to the right, that we consider you, that we consult you, that we seek you in prayer, we open your word to see what your will is. Help us to be soft and sensitive to your leading, I pray. And Father, as we are stirred by these great realities of the future, May they help us to see that this life of love and service for you, though we may suffer, though we may go without, um, in the context of that period and in the context of eternity, is actually nothing. And Lord, as we begin to serve, as we begin to give our lives for you, may you help us to experience and know the blessing and the joy that it is to give instead of receiving. And we ask for your blessing for all of these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.